Okay, as you find your way to your seat this morning, it is good to see you. If this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor of New Life East here. Grateful to have our online audience join us as well. If you're in the room here this morning, can you give it up for our online friends that are worshiping with us? We're one congregation together. It is hard to believe. Pastor Colin, that was such a great word about us being together now for a year. It was one year ago yesterday we had our first little prayer and worship gathering in the cafeteria there getting ready for our launch. And I remember saying to the group back then, hey, mark this moment. Remember these days. One day we'll look back on these as like the good old days, you know, or whatever. And um, (laughs) I told the group this morning that uh, in some ways that moment feels like just yesterday. And in other ways, it feels like 150 years ago. But uh, God has been faithful and it's amazing. Like given the circumstances of this year, this is the most infelicitous time, I think, to try to plant a church. It should have washed us away, and it didn't wash us away. And that's a credit to you guys, who you are, and how you, yeah, give yourselves a hand and give the Lord praise for his strength in our midst. It's just incredible to see this congregation standing like this. I'm in the book of Luke, chapter 2 this morning. This is the second Sunday of Advent. Advent, as I'll talk about a little bit this morning is that moment in the church calendar when the church turns its attention to the inbreaking reign of God in the person of Jesus. And so there's all of these stories in the early parts of the Gospels that set us up to, set, uh, uh, to enter into Advent spirituality well. So I'm going to be in Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to start in verse 22. Let's pause our hearts here for a word of prayer. The psalmist said that the earth is the Lord and everything in it, the world and all who dwell in it. That means that every place that we're standing on is holy ground. And especially here when we come together, Lord, we acknowledge that wherever two or three, this is your own word, wherever two or three are gathered together in your name, that you're there in the midst of them. We don't know how that is so, but we believe that it is so and we can sense that it's so. For you are this morning already comforting our hearts and tapping us on the shoulder and whispering in our ears and opening our eyes. And many of us woke up this morning feeling darkness and despair in our hearts. And then we walked into this fellowship where we flipped open our cell phone and we're watching this gathering this morning and something of the life of God is coming to us. We believe that you're here and we're grateful for that. We're grateful that you have spoken and you still speak. And that these scriptures that we're coming to are not just a record of what you did a long time ago back then, but they are a testimony to what you are doing now. And so we pray that you would help us locate ourselves in this story in exactly the way that you need us to locate ourselves in this story. I pray that we would find ourselves inside this story and find you in this story. And that you'd break us open for the kingdom in a fresh way this morning. Grant that. We're asking that the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just like it's written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer A sacrifice in keeping what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit 
that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the very glory of your people Israel. And the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And there was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after their marriage and then she was a widow until she was 84 years old and she never left the temple. I love that. But she worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. And coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee in their own, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Advent, as I mentioned last week, is just a word that means coming. It comes from the old Latin adventus. And the Christian faith, rooted as it is in Judaism, is a faith that believes that God is not just kind of up there out in the sky somewhere, but we believe that our God is coming, that there is an inbreaking of God, that he is coming to dwell with us. And traditionally, the church orients itself towards three comings of the Lord. The first coming happened in the first century when God, a very God, Jesus Christ, took on a human body and lived and moved as one of us in our flesh. First coming. The second coming, of course, is at the end of all things. We believe that he will return again in glory to judge both the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So the ancient Jewish people believed in one coming. Christians, because of the ascension of Jesus, we believe that that single coming of the Lord now has been split at least in two, the first coming and then the second coming, when Jesus fulfills and completes everything that he began at his first coming. But there's another coming that the church discerns, and it's the many ways in which between that first coming and the second coming, the Lord Jesus does break into our lives, that he is walking with us right now. His presence is here among us, part of the great importance, as I mentioned last week, and we'll come back to this this morning, of worship, is that when we come to worship, we believe that there's an advent of God that's happening here. The inbreaking of the kingdom is taking place here. So Advent spirituality is all about a kind of watchfulness. It's having your eyes open for the coming of the Lord. Jesus put it like this, Mark 13, verse 32, 35 rather. He says, therefore, keep watch because you don't know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. And if he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone. That's the word there. Watch. That's our whole faith. Our faith is a faith of watchfulness. That what we're doing is we're keeping our eyes open. As the psalmist said in Psalm 130, more than the watchman waits for the morning. More than the watchman waits for the morning. That what we're doing is we're standing at the ready. We're looking at the horizon. We're waiting and we're watching for the coming of the Lord. The people of God have a kind of curiosity about them. 
that they always believe that God in Christ Jesus is moving in their midst. So what they're doing is they're hunting for him. They're looking for him. So the big question then of Advent spirituality is if our call is to watch for the Lord, how will we know him when he comes? How will we know him when he comes? Back to the story. What I find fascinating about this story in Luke chapter 2 is that you have all of these people in the temple that day. The temple was a place that was always bustling with people. People there to offer sacrifices and to take care of their atonement, to worship the Lord. There were tons of people there that day. And there were many people in Jerusalem that day. And yet it was just two that day that were able to identify the coming of the Lord. It was the old man Simeon who the scripture says was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was righteous and devout. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And in verse 26, it says that it had been revealed by the Spirit that he wouldn't die before he'd seen the Lord's Messiah. And then moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. There is this element of Simeon's life where he dwells in the living presence of God. And among all of the people of Jerusalem, it was Simeon that was moved to head into the temple and to see Joseph and Mary and the little baby. And somehow, amid all of these people, Simeon was able to identify who Jesus was. Similarly, you have Anna, the prophetess of the tribe of Asher, the daughter of Penuel. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. She was a widow until she was 84, never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, the scripture says, fasting and praying. And somehow in the midst of all of the clamor and all of the activity of the temple, Anna identifies that this little baby is indeed the Messiah, which I find fascinating. Because there was nothing especially on the surface of it noteworthy about Joseph and Mary. And certainly Jesus doesn't have a little tattoo on his head that says, hi, this is the Messiah. He's just, a, just, just another baby, just another young couple in the temple. And yet Simeon and Anna both are able to identify that this is indeed God in the flesh. This is indeed the Lord's Messiah. The famous painter, Dutch painter Rembrandt, painted this scene several hundred years ago. This is the old man Simeon, if you can see it. It's the old man Simeon. And he's with Joseph and Mary. High priest is there. Crowds on the steps everywhere. And Simeon is holding this baby. As the scripture says, he took the baby in his arms and he said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. I love this painting for so many reasons. It speaks to me of a man who's dwelt in the presence of God and knows God very well. But what I find most fascinating about this painting is where Simeon's eyes are oriented. If you can see it, where are his eyes looking? They're looking up to the heavens. He's not really looking at the, the baby, which I find fascinating. It seems as though what Rembrandt is saying was that Simeon was able to identify the baby as God's Messiah because he had his eyes on something besides the baby, something beyond the baby. Does that make sense? 
He was able to identify the light of the world when the light of the world came in human flesh because his eyes had always been fixed upon the light of the world. He was intimately acquainted with the light of the world so that when the light of the world was presented to him in this vulnerable child, he could identify it as the light of the world. Are you tracking with me this morning? It's something about a familiarity with God that positions us to identify God when God does show up in front of us. A couple years ago, I was traveling with Pastor Brady uh, to Louisiana to minister to a church there, and we had a connecting flight from the Springs uh, in Houston. How many of you have ever been to the Houston airport? That sucker is huge. The Houston airport is huge. I grew up in a town of 18,000 people in central Wisconsin. The Houston airport is the size of the town I grew up in. And I know this because one time my wife and I took a shuttle from one side of the Houston airport to the other. And you know how long it took? Exactly the amount of time that it takes to get from one end of Marshfield, Wisconsin to the other, 11 minutes, okay? It's huge. And we have this connecting flight in Houston. And so we get off our flight and you know how it is when you're in a busy airport, tons of people everywhere and you're trying to make sure that your connecting flight is on time and all of that. And so Brady's walking up and there's a couple of those monitors there that show all the flights, you know, the flight schedule. And so he's got his eyes on the monitor there and I kind of looked at the monitor and then I was also sort of trying to figure out where do we need to go next. And so as you're doing when you're in a large room, you know, you're kind of scanning and all of that. And then I looked over this direction and I saw somebody whose face was vaguely familiar to me and I went, Wait, wait, is it, is it really possible that I'm seeing what I think I'm, I'm seeing here? And so I start moving that direction and walking that direction. And sure enough, in the middle of the Houston airport, which again is the size of the town that I grew up in, this huge place filled with people, you know who was sitting at a little cafe table right there? It was my little brother, John William Arndt, five and a half years younger than me. And out of all, I mean, talk about a needle in a haystack out of all of those people. There's my, and I cannot, you know how it is when you run into somebody like out of context. I could not believe what I was seeing. I, I walk up to him and he's sitting at this chair here and I get down real close to him like that. And it takes him about seven seconds to figure out who he's looking at. Because again, we're out of context. I go, John, he goes, Andrew, and I go, what are you doing here? He goes, what are you doing here? I said, well, we've got it. We're doing this thing in Louisiana. He goes, well, I'm playing some music at a church here, and I gotta, so I'm here to burn some time. And so Brady and I got some time with John. We sat at a table together, ate lunch together, enjoyed communion, enjoyed fellowship. What, what was it that allowed me, that positioned me to pick John's face out of a crowd? Well, I know what he looks like. I know how John, I know his little mannerisms. I know how John is. I'm intimately acquainted with all of John's ways so that in the midst of all of this craziness of the Houston airport, when John William Arndt shows up in front of me, there's a moment of recognition. I can see him. And I want to submit to you that what positioned Simeon and Anna to identify the Messiah that day was that they were familiar with him before he came. I want to say it to you this way this morning. Here's a theological proposition for you that I want you to chew on. That if God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then Simeon and Anna had communed not just with God in the abstract, but they had communed with Jesus long before he appeared in the flesh, and thus they recognized him 
when he did appear. Simeon and Anna knew Jesus, guys, so that when Jesus stood up, when Jesus was presented, they had eyes to see him. That is the central spiritual task of the Christian life, is becoming identified, acquainted with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that when he moves and when he speaks and when he acts and when his presence breaks out among us, we can see him. Jesus himself lived this way. John chapter 5, the scripture says, Jesus, who did a miracle on the Sabbath day, scripture says that because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God, verse 19. But Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself, but he can only do what, what? He sees the father doing because whatever the father does, that the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Jesus says, that he doesn't do anything except that he sees his father in heaven doing it. And indeed, the father shows him all the things that he does. So that Jesus' orientation is not just, listen to me, Jesus' orientation is not just to what's happening on the surface level of reality. But Jesus is so oriented to what's happening beyond the surface level of reality that he can perceive what's truly happening on the surface of reality. Are you tracking with me? Guys, this is the central spiritual task for the church. Not just to believe vaguely in Jesus, but to become so acquainted with Jesus that we can spot him as he tucks himself into our lives. The 19th century poet Gerard Manley Hopkins put it like this. He said that Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs, lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. Christ plays in 10,000 places. Where is Jesus? Oh, brothers and sisters, he is everywhere. He is walking in our midst. He is speaking. He is touching people's lives. He is healing them. He is opening up blind eyes. He's at work in society. He's at work in worship. He's at work in the church. He's at work in the marketplace. He's at work in your families, in all of the hustle and bustle of life. He is at work. Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs, lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father, through the features of men's faces. Our task is to learn to identify him, to spot him as he is doing his thing in front of us. I've told you this story before, but I've only lived once, so I've only got a handful of stories. But this one exemplifies it so well. For me, I had a friend years ago who worked for an Episcopal church in Denver, complex polity and organizational structure, and lots of committee meetings in these churches. And they were having a committee meeting one day that was very contentious. And there was an old priest on staff there named Art. Father Art is his name. And the debate raged back and forth, and people were at each other's throats. No, we should do it this way. No, we should do it this way. Well, I think God is telling us this. Well, I think God is telling us that. 
the rage at the surface level of reality, right? And all along, Father Art is sitting over in the corner at the table, but quiet, with his arms folded, listening to what's happening. And they asked him, at some point, they realized that the wisest guy in the room has not said anything yet. So they direct their attention to him. Father Art, we've been talking about this for a long time. And some people say this and some people say that. And what do you think? What should we do? Where should we go? What is God saying? And you know what Art said? He said, I think that the Holy Spirit always leads us into friendship. Broke the tension. See, we're always wanting to identify God up here at the surface level of reality and this thing and that thing. And I think about the moment that we inhabit in our society right now. It's very much like that vestry meeting. Contentious and warring and factious. And do you know what we need right now? Do you know what we need in our families? Do you know what we need in our businesses? Do you know what we need in our churches? Do you know what we need in government? Do you know what we need? We need people that are willing to peer past the surface of reality to what God is really doing there. And I asked my friend, I said, what happened in the room when Art said that? He said it totally changed. It like tilted the playing field. Totally reframed the conversation because if God is the one that's always leading us into friendship, then what unites us is greater than what divides us. And when we believe that, it actually helps us navigate our way through the situations in which we feel divided. Guys, our world is desperate for more father arts. <laughs> it's desperate for more Simeons. It's desperate for more Annas. It's desperate for people that are so acquainted with the face of the Lord Jesus that they can spot him in all of the warp and woof of life. The question is, how do we become Simeons? How do we become Annas? And I want to suggest to you three things this morning. First, I think that we become Simeons and Annas through our life of personal devotion, our life of personal devotion. You'll notice about Simeon, look back at the text here, chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Verse 27, moved by the Spirit. He went into the temple courts and then he took the child in his arms saying, look back down at Anna, verse 36. She was a prophet, the daughter of Penuel, the tribe of Asher. She was old. She lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. I love this commentary. She never left the temple, but what? Worshipped God night and day, fasting and praying. The psalmist said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I've asked of the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To what? To gaze, do you know it? Upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. My heart says of you, the psalmist goes on, Seek his face. Your face, O Lord, will I seek. This is the heart of Christian spirituality. That what we do on a daily basis is we sequester ourselves. We get alone with the Lord. And it 
it, what it does for us is it sets us up to become acquainted with his face. That face that is the height of human longing, that face that is the greatest thing that we could ever see, which is why we close the services with it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. I've been following Jesus my entire life and been practicing the life of devotion since I was seven, eight years old. I cannot tell you the amount of times I've been in the prayer closet sitting with the scriptures on my lap or meditating in prayer quietly. And all of a sudden, something that I read in the scriptures or something will come back to me and I'll be thinking about my life and all the things that I'm troubled and vexed about. And all of a sudden, the Lord will flash upon me like a flash of insight. And I'll see that, oh, that thing that I was stuck on there, that's where God is at work in that situation. Or the Lord will speak to me. He'll move me in some way. And it'll totally reorient my approach to that. I'm saying to you this morning that if that's not a part of your life, you will be the poorer for it. It's the life of personal devotion that set Simeon and Anna up to spot the Lord Jesus when he came. But secondly, it's not just the life of personal devotion, but it's also the life of corporate worship. You'll, you'll notice that the context for their identification of the Messiah is where? It's the temple. That place that contained Israel's hopes and longings and dreams, the long story of God's dealing with them, all of the forms of worship embodied in what happened in the official cult of the temple, all of that that was taking place, it created this symbolic universe, this meaning universe that allowed them to identify God when God moved in front of them. It gave them an interpretive grid for reality so that when reality broke out in front of them, they could see it. Part of the reason that we come to worship is not just to have weakery feelings and to be filled up, but worship trains us in a kind of seeing. That when we come here, we remember that the God that is enthroned on our praises is the God whose life is broken open for the life of the world. And that changes the way that we think about who we are and how we fit in God's world and who God is. When those that don't know the Lord say of God that God must be some all-powerful supreme being that's just kind of trying to whack people and knocking people upside the heads to get them straight, what well, we believe is that our God is not like that. But our God came among us as a baby and he allowed himself to be tortured and humiliated and his life was poured out unto death. And each time we come back to that reality, it baptizes our eyes. I'm sure that each one of you sitting in this room could talk to us about dozens and dozens of moments where you have been in worship. And something about the preaching, something about the prayers, something about coming to the table, something about it opened up your eyes and it resituated you in your life. And I've heard people say over the years, you know, I don't get what the big deal is with church services. You know, I can't remember any sermons that have ever been preached to me. You know, I don't know. It just all kind of goes in one ear and out the other. And I think to myself, are you crazy? Yeah, I don't remember 99.995% of the messages that I have ever heard in my life. But what I know is that there's some kind of formation that takes place. That over time, what it's done is it's baptized my imagination so that I see God in a way that I would not have seen him if I wasn't here. Think about after Jesus is raised from the dead, how he's walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. You remember this story? The scripture says that he came up and he walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He's raised from the dead. 
They had spent three years with him. They knew him pretty well. They ought to have known the way that he told stories and the way that he handled scripture, the unique timber of his voice. They ought to have known. They ought to have seen the features of his face. They should have been able to identify Jesus and he's there with them, walking along the road with them, talking to them about the scriptures and the fulfillment of Israel's hope. And the scripture says that the sun was going down and they got to where they were staying and Jesus pretended as if he was going to go further. And they said, no, it's getting dark. You need to come and stay with us. And so Jesus obliges them and he goes down and they sit together at a table. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them. And you know what the scripture says? It's Jesus. And you know what he did? Vanished from their sight. Gotcha. They knew him. They had walked with him physically. And he was right there. And they didn't see him until they got to the moment of communion. That's the power of our worship. That it baptizes our eyes. And all of a sudden we go, there you are, Lord Jesus. So it's the life of personal devotion. And it's the life of corporate worship. But I want to say that there's one more place and way where our eyes are baptized to see the Lord, and it's this. How do we become Simeons and Annas? We do it by committing to a life of commitment to human need. Commitment to human need. You know this parable in Matthew chapter 25. The scripture says that when the Son of Man comes in his glory, And all of the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world for I was and you and I was and you, I was a, and you, I needed, and you, I was, and you, I was, and you, and the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you with thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in and eating clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did unto me. You didn't just do it for me in some abstract way. Jesus is saying you literally did it. You did it to me. It was directly done to me. I don't know how to explain this. I can track the trajectory of it through Scripture, but I don't know how to explain it. What I do know is that God somehow, in the person of Jesus, makes all human need his own. I'll take it a step further. What God does in the person of Jesus is that God makes the needy his own. So that the way that we treat the needy is directly the way that we treat Jesus. I'll put it this way. That the measure of our attention to human need is the measure of our attention to the presence of Christ. 
You say, well, that's kind of a scandalous thing for you to say. I'm sorry, Jesus said it. But what we think is that we can have this deep attention to Jesus. Oh, I love Jesus. I'm so into Jesus. I signed up for the Jesus Club. I love prayer and I love worship and I love all of that. I just love being lost in Jesus' presence. You know, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and what? The things of the earth, well, go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I can just lose myself in Jesus and forget about all the stuff that's happening around me. And that's kind of spirituality is anti-biblical. Our commitment to the person of Jesus, our being caught up in him, our true attention to him, if it is true attention to him, actually opens our eyes to human need. It drives us into human need. It makes us peculiarly responsive to human need. And our attention to human need, once again, it is the measure of our attention to Jesus Christ. So that if we ignore the needy, we ignore God. If we ignore the needy, we ignore God. It's not coincidental that Joseph and Mary are a poor, struggling couple. Simeon and Anna knew the God who had determined to take the poor underneath his canopy so that when the poor came among them, they spotted the living presence of the Lord. Are you with me this morning? Guys, this is part of our call as Christians. It's not just to spot Jesus in nice wistful moments that we have when I'm having a nice devotional time or reading something that's particularly inspiring. The call for the believer is to spot Jesus through the features, as Hopkins said, through the features of people's faces, particularly the people that we would maybe rather not pay attention to once upon a time. My family and I lived in a neighborhood that had a real troubled family that had just moved into it. And the kids, we knew that they were troubled the first time that we met them. The kids just had showed every sign of being neglected. They had odd social quirks and odd behaviors and would always interrupt us at the most inconvenient time, knocking on the door right as we're sitting down for dinner or for a movie or whatever. And when they, my kids would spend time with them, they always picking up strange things from these kids. You know how it is protective of your children, you know. And, <laughs> and I remember we were getting a little cynical in our hearts and snarky towards this family. And one day after dinner, we'd been reading through the Gospels and we read this passage, Matthew chapter 25. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you brought me in. We read this and we had discussion about it. And I said to the kids that night, I said, guys, I think that the Lord is speaking to us. I think that the Lord is speaking to us about this family. I think that what we've seen in this family is a great nuisance. An annoyance. Something that we'd rather not deal with because we have better things to do. And of course, you know, we're a pastor, we're a ministry couple. So we're always helping people. You know, can't please somebody else, help this family, right? I said to my family that night, I said, if this text is true, then when those kids come knocking on our door, and one in particular was always knocking on our door, little Sarah, I said, when little Sarah knocks on our door, that is literally and actually, that is Jesus Christ knocking on our door. So I said, from here on out, when that door knocks, it doesn't matter when it is, you and I are going to recognize the presence of Jesus and we are going to treat little Sarah and her siblings like royalty. Two seconds later. 
sure enough, it was her. Jesus came to us. I've been in the church my entire life, and one of the things I have noticed about us as believers is that we're always pining for the last day. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Break through this veil of our reality and come among us, Lord Jesus. We should cry that. And we must cry that because the scripture teaches us to cry it. But one of the things that I am more aware of now than I have ever been is that if we have not trained ourselves to identify the Lord Jesus in our midst now, we will never identify him when he splits the eastern skies and comes with his kingdom and his glory. The time for recognizing Jesus is now. Let's stand together. This now is the moment when we allow the Lord to begin to break us down. When we acknowledge that we have not acknowledged him. When we come to him, not as people who can see, but as people who are blind and need to see. And so Lord Jesus, now we're pleading with you like the blind men of the gospels, the blind women of the gospels. We are pleading with you now, open up our eyes. We long for you. We ache for you. As the psalmist said, in a dry and weary land where there is no water, we are desperate for you and we want to see you. We want to see you. And we believe that the gospel is true and it tells us that we can't open our own eyes. Only you can open our eyes. So we pray that this morning you would do that in us afresh. We pray that you'd remove the scales from our eyes and teach us to see you again. And we make this our prayer of confession before you. Say it with me, family. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And now, brothers and sisters, hear the good news of the gospel. The scripture says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set us free from the law of sin and death. If you can receive that this morning, give God praise. Let's sing this song of worship together, and then Pastor Colin's is going to lead us to the table.
The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. This morning, would you just give praise and thanks to Jesus this morning for all that he has done, for everything that he will be. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you proclaim the mystery of our faith together? Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. God, this morning we are thankful for these elements that we hold in our hand. And like we, like we learned this morning, Lord, this is where we identify you. God, we, we hold this evidence in our hand, Lord, that you came and you walked among us. And God, we say, come quickly and help us identify you, Lord, every, every day. God, we believe that you are walking amongst us today, Lord, and we want to identify you now. Help us to do that as we take these elements. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Let's receive the bread together. Let us receive the cup together. Thank you, Jesus. Let's sing together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. That Advent candle is getting dangerously close to setting our wreath on fire. So it happens when you send the pastor out to get candles. He doesn't look for the dripless ones. That's critical, aren't? That's critical. Lift up your hands to heaven here. Oh, my brothers and sisters, as you go from this place, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. One quick thing I want to say to you, um, many of you have been watching the numbers of um, new uh, diagnoses of COVID here in El Paso County. Two days ago, we had the highest number of them, I think a thousand or so. And um, we are so desperate as a church to stay open, to stay worshiping together physically like this. But one of the things that we have said all along is that if hospitals get to a point where they're critical and hospital workers are telling us, y'all need to close, you know, please help us, then we're going to come to their aid and the aid of those who are sick by doing just that. 
So we know how good this has been to be together. It's good for us psychologically. It's good for us spiritually to be in this space together. But if it comes to a point where it's not safe for us to be open anymore, then we'll make that decision and we'll go back online for a couple weeks. And if we do that, we'll do that. It'll be really short, just enough to kind of take the edge off of it so that we can get back. So just be aware of that. We're not just wanting to protect our mental health and emotional health, but we want to protect physical health, okay? So be praying for hospital workers, be praying for our city, and be praying for us as a leadership team to make wise decisions. Brothers and sisters, you are loved. Go in the grace and peace of the Lord, and we'll see you next Sunday.